0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan.
1: And I'm Fergus Kell, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa programme.
0: Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be discussing the topic of China-African relations, with a specific focus on debt sustainability, infrastructure finance and growth. African debt remains a key issue on the international agenda as we come towards the end of 2021. Much of this debt is linked to infrastructure projects actually aimed at boosting economic development. And in a recent piece by Africa Programme Associate Fellow Professor Carlos Lopez, former Executive Director of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Professor Carlos says... Africa is the least indebted region when judged against GDP or per capita, but it is the most affected by sovereign debt pressure. And I think that really sets up today's episode. To discuss this further and highlight the programme's work around this area, I'm very lucky to be joined by my colleague, Fergus Kell. Hi, Fergus.
1: Hi, Yusuf. Pleasure to be here.
0: So Fergus is currently supporting a Chatham House project exploring debt sustainability, infrastructure finance and growth in Africa with a specific focus on China. Fergus, could you outline what this project's about?
1: So this is a cross-Chatham House collaborative project. So we as the Africa Programme are working alongside the Asia-Pacific Programme and the Global Economy and Finance Programme on this research. We know that lack of infrastructure has been a major bottleneck for the economic expansion of many countries in Africa and that securing funding for infrastructure development is a major challenge. The African Development Bank estimates that the financing gap for the continent's infrastructure needs could be as much as $100 billion each year. Alongside that, there's also concern over the rising debt burdens of many African countries. This was already being flagged before COVID emerged, but has of course been exacerbated by the pandemic. And it's making it even more challenging to source sufficient funds for new infrastructure development or rollover or refinance previous loans. So the overall aim of the research project is to look at this issue of rising debt in African economies and to explore possible policy opportunities or innovations that could help to achieve more debt sustainability over the medium to long term, but also are sensitive to this need to address the continent's infrastructure deficit. Part of this picture is about examining how multilateral debt relief initiatives such as the G20's DSSI and Common Framework have progressed, but also our major focus is on the role of Africa-China relations. China is now the largest financier of infrastructure projects on the continent, so it has a major role to play in closing that financing shortfall. But its loans have also attracted some controversy over claims of a lack of transparency, issues with local content, and suggestions around political influence via the collateralization of strategic assets. There's a tendency sometimes to view this purely through the lens of great power competition and to see African countries as passive sites of influence, Our project wants to explore the agency of African countries in this relationship with China and their perspectives on their infrastructure financing needs and debt sustainability efforts.
0: A really succinct explanation of this really interesting project and I'm sure our audience will really benefit from some of the outputs coming out of this. What's interesting for me, Fergus, is actually the fact that you've just come back from Dakar. Dakar also just hosted FOCAC, the Forum of China-Africa Cooperation. Can you provide our audience with somewhat of a summary of what went on at the summit major learnings and actually the, the outcomes?
1: The Forum on China-Africa Cooperation or, or FOCAC, this is the high level political forum for the relationship. It happens roughly every three years, ever since 2000, and it alternates between China and an African country as host. So this in Dakar was the eighth edition hosted by Senegal at the end of November, 2021. It was the first to be held in West Africa and the first in a Francophone country. So this summit, it took place at the ministerial level, so the traveling delegations, which uh, so from China, from 53 different African countries, and from the African Union, generally didn't include heads of state, but, but ministers of foreign affairs or finance. In terms of specific outcomes, there were four documents that came out of this FOCAC. The most important of these is the Dakar Action Plan, which is the detailed foundational document that outlines the aspects of cooperation over the next three years until the 2024 FOCAC in Beijing. Then we also have three further documents, which are more general political statements about the collaboration. So there's the Dakar Declaration. There's also the FOCAC China Africa Vision 2035. That's really the longer term vision for the partnership over the next decade and a half. And then finally, also a joint declaration on combating climate change. President Xi did a virtual address at the summit, which outlined the headline commitments from the action plan. And in terms of clearly defined financial pledges, there's four main ones we can speak of. So, firstly, China's promised to provide $10 billion of trade finance to support African exports. So, that fits in with a broader ambition to increase Chinese imports from Africa to $300 billion annually by 2035. Then there is encouraging $10 billion of investment by Chinese businesses over the next three years and creating a platform for China-Africa private investment promotion. There's also a commitment to providing credit lines of $10 billion to African financial institutions with the priority to support the development of SMEs. And then as well, channeling $10 billion of China's IMF uh, special drawing rights to Africa. So that's roughly a quarter of China's total SDR allocation. We also saw a major promise on COVID to ensure supply of 1 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses to Africa, 600 million of those as a donation and 400 million via joint production or other means.
0: It seems like a very productive summit. And actually, maybe to, to follow on there slightly, you know, I really like the fact that when you began explaining the project itself, you focus on African agency. You, you mentioned that instead of seeing African states as passive actors, that they also had, of course, an important role to play in this relationship. The question I'd probably have for you there is, how did the commitments provided at this summit differ from previous summits in relation to, you know, the relationships change? Because, of course, China is not the sole player on the African continent, even though many would like to say that it is. How is the relationship changing and, and how has that changed some of the commitments made?
1: Well, firstly, I think there's been a lot of focus since the summit on that overall financial commitment, which, which totals around $40 billion, because it's the first significant decrease in a pledge um, at a FOCAC summit. So it's down from $60 billion, which was pledged in both 2018 and 2015. And previously, the commitments had doubled or tripled between summits. So in one sense, that overall number can be a bit of a red herring because the action plan also has other less clearly financially defined commitments. There's a vaccine donation, of course, but also a commitment to four sets of 10 unspecified projects in the areas of green development, peace and security, industrialization and connectivity. But that being said, I think it's important to look at the composition of the financial pledges and what that says about the relationship. And when we do that, there's a sense of a recalibration of China's approach, away from a model of heavy state financing that we've seen linked to major infrastructure loans in the past. There's instead more of this focus on credit to African financial institutions and prioritising SMEs within that, and generally towards a greater role for Chinese and African businesses for encouraging foreign direct investment and also for more innovative financing mechanisms. On the whole, China was keen to frame the summit in terms of what it calls a new development paradigm, but it's not fully clear whether there is a major cornerstone of this new paradigm in the same way as infrastructure has been arguably up to now. So I think the relationship is evolving and entering a new phase. And to a large extent, that's likely to be about China's internal policy changes and, and to some extent an economic slowdown. But it also may probably be a bit of a reflection of some of the pushback and challenges from certain African countries on existing infrastructure arrangements under the Belt and Road Initiative. Going forward, the opportunity is clearly there for African countries to more clearly state their priorities in the relationship. And one good example of that from this summit is the Climate Change Declaration. That's the first climate document to emerge at a FOCAC, and the impetus for it really came from the African hosting side.
0: Thanks so much for the answer, Fergus. Really, really interesting perspective there on, on how the relationship is changing as a result of African priorities. And actually how the economic situation has impacted every country, not just Africa itself, but the wider globe. And that impacts how they view the continent, and they view their investments in the continent. As always, a pleasure to have you on here. And uh, I look forward to hosting you next time. Thanks, Joseph. Now, moving on to the interview. Professor Tang Xiaoyan is a resident scholar and the deputy director of the Carnegie Jinghua Centre for Global Policy and the Vice-Chair and Professor in the Department for International Relations at the same university. His research interests include political philosophy, global modernization practices and China's engagement with developing countries. Welcome to Africa where Professor Tang.
2: Yes, thank you, you, Yusuf. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Of course, as mentioned in the introduction, today's episode is a really interesting look at infrastructure and its journey on the African continent, especially regarding its financing. Over the past decade, Chinese lenders rapidly increased their role in financing in African infrastructure. China is, of course, now the largest financier of infrastructure projects on the continent, with China's Exim Bank and China Development Bank, the main lenders. Other organizations are also involved. China's development financing system is quite fragmented and and some would say lacks coordination. And this has been, of course, further complicated by the establishment of China's International Development Agency in March 2018. So, Professor Tang, when we consider all of these factors, and we now exist, of course, in the post-pandemic period for many of the developing economies, how are China's post-pandemic domestic economic adjustments, including those, Set out on the 14th five-year plan likely to impact its development policies? Uh, I would say
2: that uh, China's uh, policy to engage with Africa and uh, to cooperate with Africa haven't changed much after the pandemic. In fact, the recovery uh, after the pandemic, that will be of course the focus of uh, this year's FOCAC meeting. But that will also likely just to be a short-term issue for the next two or three years and in the long run china will continue supporting africa's infrastructure construction and also the industrialization and also social economic development so uh one thing is uh, that. Uh, debt uh, burden for the last uh, maybe five years, uh, that is uh, not seen as uh, the problem of uh, giving out loans itself because Africa is still eager to have uh, investments and have fundings for its uh, very deficient uh, infrastructure. However, from the last five years, what we saw is that some of these uh, projects, they are not uh, like meeting their expectations. They may not perform well enough. And this uh, actually uh, is a question of improving the performance and improving effectiveness, not to just simply stop giving out loans. So I think... uh, after the pandemic, China will continue giving out loans, but maybe in an improved manner. So, namely to pay more attention to its performance and also figure out the way to make these projects more effective in facilitating the industrialization and development in the host country. And it's right that you are saying Chinese loans, they are fragmented, but that's just because it's based on China's unique lending system. When we look at the U.S. or the U.K., Japan's loans, maybe they look to be a coordinator because they just from one agency. But for China, Although they are like a uh, Exim Bank, uh, like uh, the uh, China Development Bank, also is the Bank of China and uh, China Industry and the Commercial Banks. But the point is that these are all like uh, commercial entities, except for Exim Bank. They are partly the uh, policy bank and giving out uh, some concessional loans. So for, that's why they, these banks uh, they actually give the loans uh, according to the market rules, uh, according to these commercial practices, and uh, they are sometimes even competing with each other. So therefore. You cannot uh, require that, although they sound like uh, being the all the state-owned uh, uh, banks, but uh, in fact, uh, their operations uh, just uh, uh, are indeed uh, the following the market rules. So therefore, you, you, when you say oh, they should be coordinated, you are actually requiring these uh, uh, banks, or you think that these banks may be like uh, these donors, which just go uh, all out uh, through one agency. But in fact, China is not uh, really a donor. China is a development partner. So therefore, they are organizing these uh, uh, commercial banks, they have their own initiative strategy and also operation uh, interests. And uh, they are, of course, they are coordinated to some extent. And uh, this I don't think uh, will be changed a lot after the pandemic. They are still looking to uh, implement uh, or moving forward this uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And they are still very confident of the African market prospect. So all these are not changed by the pandemic. And also, this basic structure won't be changed because of this uh, burden for uh, for this uh, small burden in some. uh, But these are, in fact, just concentrated in some in a few countries, not uh, a broader problem. So, this uh, China will improve its practice, but will continue to engage with Africa in general for the long run.
0: I'm sure our audience will be super thankful for your willingness to to really provide a background into why and how the mechanisms exist and why the changes have been made to the systems. Of course, with the current system as it is, with the debt burden on African countries rising with post-pandemic recoveries requiring financial capital to kickstart economies, the challenge facing many African countries is, of course, debt and the debt that, that, that currently exists on their books yeah. amongst the many debtors. And of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, with, with China financing so much infrastructure, China has been requested. It's been asked regarding its ability to take part in coordinated international debt relief initiatives. Yeah. Why do you believe there is hesitation on the part of the Chinese state? about participating in these international debt relief initiatives?
2: Well, in fact, China is very active in taking part into the debt relief initiative under the G20 framework. I don't know if that is uh, what you mean. Because China actually uh, likes to work on this debt relief in uh, multilateralism. However, China doesn't want to join like a Paris club, this group which just are made up of the so-called donors because China still considers itself as a uh, developing countries and uh, it has uh, different opinions from those uh, G7 or these rich donors. And China wants to relieve uh, the debt in a way more practical or more uh, fitting to the developing countries' needs. I can tell you that uh, even the commercial banks uh, in China Like I mentioned, this China Development Bank and the ICBC, Bank of China, they are also working with these different partners. They are both African, but also other developing countries to relieve their repayment or to delay their repayment. And they are very clear that They want to make these countries suffering from pandemic uh, able to uh, go through the difficult uh, period without uh, too much challenge. And they want to stimulate uh, the post-pandemic recovery. But uh, However, they don't uh, follow the Paris Club, uh, and uh, which has a uh, like, uh, standard uh, rule or which just uh, uses this uh, mechanical uh, universal regulations. This uh, actually China continues uh, questioning this kind of uh, method, just uh, using some uh, stubborn mechanical rules uh, and uh, to impose uh, this kind of rules on various developing countries. China doesn't think that uh, this kind of uh, mechanical regulation can really work and China r- rather wants to look at uh, concrete situations and uh, want to help these uh, countries to regain the dynamic uh, development. So and uh, that's also something which we can see at the uh, even the beginning of the 21st century in this uh, so-called resource for infrastructure models and as uh, a series of uh, following projects, China is very flexible to work with uh, different countries to uh, secure like the most fitting manner of uh, lending and uh, investing. Uh, China is also very diverse in its uh, uh, engagement manners. So that's, uh, I think, uh, uh, maybe t- uh, we can uh, understand uh, China's ways. So when the China is willing to work with the international community, in fact, even when China doesn't uh, join Paris Club, China has been working with the Paris Club on two countries' uh, data restructuring recently. One the Ethiopia, one is Chad. And uh, China still like have dialogues with them, but China just uh, think uh, this is also kind of want to keep a distance from the uh, yeah this pure donor approach, and uh, wants to uh, have its uh, own uh, understanding of development, and also have a the more flexible manner to to keep this uh, kind of flexibility and the diversity.
0: Thank you once again, Professor Tang. I think you you really highlight the importance of not viewing Chinese debt relief or, or, or Chinese strategies through a Western lens, which I think is an important one for all of us to recognize that China has its own ambitions that don't necessarily fit in with a wider Paris Club framework. However, the question I would follow up is to ask, and you are completely correct, that you know China is the biggest contributor towards the DSSI which is an important, of course, mechanism currently used to really try and lift some of the challenges regarding the debt burden that African countries are facing. However, what do you believe is necessary for China to shift from a reluctant partner that is, of course, taking place or taking part in these initiatives to one that is more collaborative in in G20 efforts? to address the problem of developing this country debt? So just moving away from the perspective of debtor, debt, but also how do we focus and, and ensure that the challenges of financing don't result in the same situation occurring again?
2: Uh, I think uh, China is already very like uh, voluntary and also active uh, in participating. China is not really a reluctant partner in this uh, DSSI. And uh, just the the main uh, obstacle, when is actually other countries, so some of the West, like also World Bank, they view all the Chinese debt as a state debt. So, but uh, as I also mentioned at the beginning, China's loans to a lot of countries, they are commercial loans. So therefore, these commercial loans, they should not be treated as a government loan. And that's uh, the business rule. And in fact, China thinks it actually uh, violates the market rule if we confuse both. See, that's uh, one point because China's economic structure is yes, always something different from the West. So you, although they are state-owned state, bank, state owned banks, state, but they are also uh, listed in the stock markets, a large part of the shareholders, they are also just uh, non-state has, uh, stakeholders. So you, therefore for the these banks, this uh, ICBC or the Bank of China, you cannot uh, ask them to do the same way as a, a government uh, con- uh, concessional loan uh, did. In reality, some of these commercial banks, they even give a, a more favorable loan relief uh, or uh, yes, a slowing of uh, loan repayment treatment to the African countries and to other partners. So I think this is again a, another characteristic of a Chinese approach china doesn't want to like show this uh, very high n- uh, note uh, public announcement because china thinks this kind of uh, announcement often they do not really benefit the partners uh, in reality so china rather uh, insists on this uh, case-by-case, more concrete observation and analysis and uh, do the things which China and also the partners agree on and which are also more concrete and more fitting for the practice. So this is uh, the typical Chinese uh, way of uh, doing business, both domestically and internationally. And uh, so this may give the audience uh, a wrong impression, saying, oh, China is not uh, giving this initiative, uh, global initiative, the strongest uh, support, but that's wrong. also another example maybe related uh, is the environment uh, uh, aspect. So China is already the world's largest producer of uh, solar energy, of wind energy, Right, so China is uh, uh, doing its promise uh, for the carbon neutral neutralization and uh, all these uh, promises. But China doesn't want to give a very like uh, general and uh, yeah br- a very broader uh, uh, promise. But China just uh, rather focus on something which China thinks that it can do, and uh, China also. Uh, when it promises, it will really do. And uh, some, I think this is a rather a different uh, way of uh, working.
0: Again, Professor Tan, thank you so much for that really, really interesting observation regarding China's role as a global player reluctantly, right? In the sense that I think, I think you really outlined the importance behind seeing China's aim not to be the, the leader in this regard, but actually just to fulfill its obligations and to do so in such a in, in a holistic manner that benefits its economy. My last question, actually, this will be in relation to really the impact that the relationship development we've seen by China as a result of much of this economic lending. And that would be when it comes to China's ambitions on a global stage, many would say that China's ability to provide debt relief. On, on such large amounts of financing that currently exists provides it with the opportunity to, to influence on a wider multilateral level. With FOCAC, of course, taking place, where do you believe China's ambitions for its engagement with the continent sit, especially in the post-pandemic world? I think China rather prefers
2: to provide data relief on the multilateral platform. So I don't think uh, in this talk uh, we'll say much about the debt relief between China and Africa because all this uh, will be settled under the DSSI and under the G20 framework. So, but uh, uh, one thing is that. Uh, china uh actually as you said uh, china yeah it's, uh, it provides the approach according to its own capability and also fitting to its interest but china also thinks that this data relief should also fit the partner countries so this better country's interests in fact china doesn't think the yeah big benefit for these debt countries is to cancel the debt at all, because uh, that's the loans that China gives to these countries. They are commercial loans. They have uh, their commercial contracts and uh, duties and obligations. So it's easy, and uh, China may also be able to even cancel a large part of these commercial loans and uh, suffer short-term loss. But actually that doesn't help these countries in the long run because these countries, they may uh, like borrow the loans from elsewhere again. And also they may um, be stuck into uh, another debt crisis after a while. This actually, we have seen the debt crisis uh, in Africa and in some uh, uh, yeah, other parts of the developing countries already several times. So this uh, just simply cancel and uh, yeah, this loans, that's not the most the key to the solution. So China, as I said, they will keep the commercial terms there. So because that's a part of the global market economy. So China would think would also then give more emphasis on building this country's capacity of for repaying. And China, when China still has this uh, loans uh, or some uh, part in these countries, that actually helps uh, to build more linkage between China and these countries. And to make to help people have this build up, this uh, Trust and also this awareness about commercial contracts. And I think for the business, this kind of trust and the commercial relationship, they are more important in the long run. So this is uh, just, I would say, if we want to see some uh, bilateral thing happening in the FOCAC, it will still be this uh, continuous uh, trust and also the bilateral willingness uh, to cooperate. This will continue, while maybe the debt cancellation or debt repayment, this actually China will see it as a more uh, like short term issues and will leave them to the G20 and uh, this uh, yeah multilateral platform. And uh, then, but uh, what's more important in the full car I think, uh, is to see this uh, consistent uh, long time strategy and uh, long time uh, uh,
0: friendship. And thank you so much, Professor Tang, for your willingness your expertise and your time to be interviewed for africa where we have really really enjoyed hosting you and hearing your insights i'm sure our audience members are all deeply thankful and i would like to of course express that gratitude in the in in, in the best way possible and we look forward to hopefully engaging with you again on this topic Thank you very much, Youssef. Yeah, that's a great pleasure for me to talk with you on, the, on your pod- podcast. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thank you for listening to Africa, where I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.